0: Ray Dalio is the founder and co-chief investment officer of Bridgewater, the largest hedge fund in the world. He's one of the 100 richest people on earth. He's also a best-selling author. And in his latest book, The Changing World Order, he uses a historical lens to examine why empires rise and fall. He lays out a case that the U.S. may be showing some signs of decline. I'm Zachary Crockett, and... In the first half of today's show, Dalio and I are going to walk through a bunch of the things that are going on in our country right now, rising debt, inflation, wealth inequality, and the rise of China as the next superpower. We're going to touch on where he sees the economy heading, and we're also going to hear his thoughts on an impending recession. In the second half of the show, we're going to explore some big failures and triumphs Dalio had in his career. And if you stick around until the very end, we've got a great story about how he helped McDonald's launch the chicken nugget ray dalio welcome to the hustle daily show
1: thank you i'm happy to be here
0: so we are in a moment where a lot of people particularly young folks feel a little disenchanted with the american dream inflation is at a 40-year high we've got a mounting debt crisis you've spent a lot of time studying the markets from a historical perspective and i'm curious what you might say to those of us who haven't lived through a time quite like this before
1: First of all, whenever you're living through a time that you haven't lived through before, you might want to check history mm-hmm. because one of the things I found out is that things that surprised me never happened in my lifetime before, but they happened many times in history. So that's why I did mm-hmm. this study going back 500 years. And the three things that surprised me and are happening now because they never happened in my lifetime are the creation of enormous amounts of debt and the printing of a lot of money to monetize that debt so the central bank can buy that debt and make a lot of liquidity and so on. Mm -hmm. That's number one. Number two is great internal conflicts, populists of the left and the right, the political conflict between the left and the right and the haves and the have-nots and people with different Mm -hmm. values, which is driving people to different states, different locations to live and so on. And the third is the great power conflict that results from different countries having a rivalry and no longer having a dominant power. The existing global world order began in 1945 when we won the war, the United States won the war. And back then we had 80 percent of the world's gold and we were 50 percent of the world's economy. And we had a monopoly really on military power. And now that gap has narrowed. And so you see the conflict with Russia and China as there is a greater equivalency of power. Sure. Those three things have implications. So we should talk about them. Inflation that you mentioned is a result of the first, and inflation will take buying power away from people. And it will also lead to a tightening of monetary policy which is another way of taking buying power away from people because the way they fight inflation is reduce your ability to buy things well, making credit tighter and making interest rates higher. So yes, that's the world we're living. (laughs) So let's walk through each of those a little bit more, starting with debt
0: creation. The national debt is now at 30 trillion. It's up 7 trillion since 2019 alone. I think a lot of people are wondering what the hell is going on with debt right now in our country. So how did we get here and and why is this a big problem?
1: Well, how we got here, creating credit stimulates and everybody wants everything to go up. So whenever you get a bad situation, you get this very heavy dose of stimulation, which is credit making available, Mm -hmm. but credit produces debt and debt is an obligation to pay back. And so it builds up over a long period of time And then in the recent times, we had 2008 and we had now the COVID. There was a desire to give people a lot of money, but there was no ability to get that money from someplace. So they created a lot of debt as a big stimulation and printed a lot of money to make that easier to pay that debt. Mm -hmm. And so that's why everything goes up in relationship to depreciated value. The lesson there, by the way, is don't hold. Dead assets. One man's debts are another man's assets. Sure. So when you hold a bond or a money market fund, you're going to get an interest rate which is substantially below the inflation rate. So you'll lose buying power about inflation. I would worry about also holding assets that are not prone to deflate mm. to do badly by losing buying power relative to inflation. So inflation protected assets.
0: And then moving to number two, internal crises, you mentioned things like political polarization. Nobody seems to be able to agree on anything right now, but particularly on class divisiveness you bring up. You know, during the pandemic, billionaires in the U.S. saw their wealth surge by 70%. I think we could probably both agree that capitalism run amok is not good. It leads to resentment and, in the worst case, revolutions, as you write. In your opinion, where does the current version of capitalism fall
1: short? It falls short in delivering the basic results. I'm a capitalist in a sense. I believe in capitalism. Sure. But I think everything's got to be reformed to produce the outcome that you want. Bottom 60% of the population has not had a rise in per capita income living standards since 1980. Mm -hmm. And we are producing these wealth gaps, as which you point out. And that is because the profit system doesn't do it all There are things such as education levels, civility between people and so on that are creating opportunity gaps. And this has been through in history, that those who have more money have more benefits, more advantages. So, for example, if you have more money, you can guarantee that you can educate your children better, which gives them a leg up. Mm -hmm. So the American dream, which I grew up with, was having parents who would raise you well, I had two parents who loved me. Mm -hmm. I went to a public school. It was a good public school. And I came out to a world of equal opportunity. And that's narrowing. Those opportunities are narrowing a lot. And the United States isn't as rich. It's more in debt than rich. And so those are the challenges. So we're seeing it politically. We're seeing it where the extremism in the politics has become greater. The populace of the right and the populace of the left, just like through history, Mm -hmm. they're fighting with each other. And we might be in a situation where what they want is more important to them than the system. The causes that people are behind are more important than the system. The system is in jeopardy. So one could imagine that neither side would accept losing in the elections, perhaps the 2024 elections, and you have this conflict. That's a big risk. And These gaps are big risk, and it requires radical reforms in order to rectify those things. But right now, everybody's at each other's throats, as you're saying. Sure. And
0: back to the wealth issues we were talking about, you know, the left wants redistribution. The right wants trickle-down policies. But your sense is that maybe a smart redistribution would be to focus on systemic things like education.
1: I think, first of all, the most important thing is that you develop a solid middle and bipartisanship of smart people who also can work together across party lines to make the reforms, okay? I think we need a very strong middle so that the extremists don't fight because we can get into a type of civil war if the two extremists are fighting, and I've seen it. I've seen it happen repeatedly in studying history. Mm-hmm. So that's a paramount importance. I almost don't care what's done as long as it's bipartisan, really, sure. practically. So the, that bipartisanship is number one. But there are smart investments that can be made. Investments in education, for example. Sure. Infrastructure. If you wanna look at what countries did well, they invest in infrastructure because it's a good investment. It's not spending money. Education is a good investment. It's not spending money. So if there was bipartisanship to make those good investments, and what I mean good investments is they pay off both economically and create a society, more broad-based environment, because you don't know where the talent's going to come from, and you want to give that equal opportunity. Sure. And then also when you draw that talent is it creates a fairer society, minimizes these conflicts and also creates increases in productivity when you educate these populations well. So I think those sorts of things need to take place because otherwise we will get into a spiral in which we will become almost dysfunctional fighting with each other. And that's what we saw in the 1930 to 45 period. So that's what I worry about.
0: Would you say something like a billionaire tax is kind of just a red herring for bigger problems that aren't addressing the underlying issues?
1: Well, I think that there needs to be a transfer of wealth and that's going to have to come significantly from taxes and the wealthy can pay for it better. And so I think that's inevitable that that would and should come. Sure. Now, the form of the tax is a different question. How does it work? If you have a wealth tax, let's say a billionaire and you try to tax it, there are technical problems with that because how do you tax, let's say, wealth? Well, When you have a wealth tax, that requires you to be able to value all those assets. Mm -hmm. Some of those assets are not easy to value. What's your home? They're illiquid. And illiquid means, well, where do you get the cash to pay your taxes? Mm -hmm. So there are barriers to certain types of taxes. Inheritance taxes, if you're going to try to make a wealth tax, is a more effective way of bringing about taxes. Mm -hmm. But in any case, we need that. Our generation my generation, has borrowed a lot of money and um, left the next generation, your generation, with a broken down infrastructure and having borrowed a lot of money. Hmm. And so that's a problem. You don't often hear that admittance. (laughs) Well, it's just a fact. Sure.
0: Let's move on to your third point here, which is, you know, we're also seeing this steady rise of China as a superpower. And you write in your book that China may eventually usurp America as the world's leading superpower. Can you touch on a few indicators that that prediction is based upon?
1: Uh, let me clarify. Sure. It is inevitable that for the foreseeable future, that China will be a comparable power, let's call it. Stronger okay. in some ways, less strong in other ways, and that it is likely that it will past the United States, but not certain. It'll all depend on how strong the United States is by taking care of itself. But anyway, to give you numbers, you asked for that. China has a population which is more than four times the size of the United States. So if it had a per capita income, which was half the United States, it would be twice as large economically. And it's been growing at a fast pace since 1984. It's per capita income, has increased by 26 times. Wow. Okay, so it is growing, and they have maybe more potential to grow. So we know that we can't discount China, and we know that we're in a different world than in the early years of me growing up when the United States was the dominant power. So we know that we're going to have that great power conflict, and so we even better get stronger or expect that we have to deal with that power conflict, ideally in a way that does not produce a military war.
0: Uh, you mentioned China's population growth. Do you see maybe their aging population or other things like their opaque financial markets? or They also have several controversial social problems that they're dealing with on their own. Do you see these as potential threats to China?
1: China has problems that you're referring to. For example, the demographics, particularly with the one child policy, meant that it used to be that there were kids taking care of the parents. Sure. But now we have one child, two parents. Right. And at the same time as you're taking care of your children, and that's more than is possible. So the demographic issue is an important issue in China. And so it has a number of challenges but we also have a number of challenges. (laughs) And in any case, it's likely that they will grow at a faster pace than we will grow at, despite those challenges, because they are being very productive. Here's a little bit of a contrarian question
0: that a listener sent in. Would it really be bad to be, say, the third or the fifth country in the world order? like a Japan or a Germany, for instance. I guess, what do you lose when you lose that top spot on the throne? I
1: think that top spot is way exaggerated as being important. (laughs) Sure, sure. I mean, to some extent, you can control things more when you're in the top spot, but the going to war and leading those wars is terribly dangerous, and also maintaining that top spot is very costly. Like, for example, the United States has bases in 70 countries. That's costly. And so that's a challenge. History has shown that economically and in many respects, uh, the best position is to be a neutral country in a war. Hmm. They do better. And so being number one brings with it problems, too. Sure,
0: You mentioned in the book, of course, the changing world order. You look back at 500 years of historical data on world empires you looked at things like education, competitiveness in global markets, economic output, military strength, and you use these metrics to examine why empires rise and fall. And uh, one really interesting chart in the book is the big cycle. It's an arc that maps out the major steps in the rise and fall of an empire. I think there are 18 total, and then there are, there are a bunch of micro-occurrences within those. Where do you see the U.S. right now in this cycle? Because we are seeing a lot of those late-stage elements
1: on the chart in your book. So we're in the riskier part of the cycle, which is the cycle before wars, right before wars. We are, let's say, at the brink, Hmm. we're close to this. Now, that doesn't mean it's inevitable. Really, it all comes down to how we are with each other. The world has more resources, more wealth than it ever had. And if there's peace and working together, to deal with the sharing of the wealth and the opportunities in certain ways, you can avoid wars, internal and external.
0: And a few steps back from war, we've heard a lot of prominent voices weigh in on whether or not an impending recession is coming. What are your general thoughts on that? I know you've said in the past that we are in a period of stagflation right now.
1: Yes, I believe that we will be in a period of stagflation because the central bank will try to deal with middle ground but it'll be difficult. So they're going to get doses of both rather than just one. Mm -hmm. So we have a situation where we have inflation. Nobody likes inflation. That takes buying power away. Mm -hmm. And the other way that they're going to do it is to fight inflation by taking more buying power away by making credit less available and raising interest rates. So for those reasons, I think we're going to have a stagflation, probably a relatively extended period of stagflation. And you mentioned
0: Russia as well. This book was obviously published seven months ago before the conflict emerged, in its current state at least. What types of big questions are you asking about Russia right now as it relates to what you discuss in the book?
1: There are three big questions that we'll find out within the next several months. The first is, will Russia and Putin win or lose. Um, and what I mean by that is winning would mean he keeps control of the eastern part of the Ukraine. He does not, and Russia does not have an unacceptable downturn. If the economy falls 10 or 15%, that's tolerable. If it falls 40%, that's intolerable. So does it have a tolerable impact? Mm-hmm. And the third is that he remains in power and he remains player on the world stage, such as goes to the G20 meetings. If that's the case, then he will have won, gotten what he wanted, pretty much, at an acceptable cost. If it's not the case that he doesn't have those things, there's a risk of him escalating, such as nuclear. But we're going to find out how this works. You know, people are hoping for some sort of a compromise. I think what's probably most likely is that there's a ceasefire at some point. Sure, And then that works. But the second thing we're going to learn is the power of American sanctions because those sanctions are supposed to cause the changes because of the economic pain. Hmm. We're learning the power and we're learning the cost of those sanctions. Cost because other countries are worried that they can be sanctioned by holding American debt. right? And so there's less desire to hold American debt because of that. And the third thing we're going to learn and we are learning, is how the different countries are lining up. Are they lining up in support of Russia and China? Or are they not lining up in support of them? And so you could see countries like India, Indonesia, Middle Eastern countries, Mm -hmm. many countries, have not been in support of Europe and the United States in this. So we're beginning to see those things. Over the next few months, we will see those things Get greater clarity of those questions. And then we will see whether we get a step up in the conflict or a step down. A step up would be very dangerous.
0: Hmm. Um, and another sort of ancillary question some folks have about the financial future is what role, if any, cryptocurrency might play in international monetary policy. Of course, there's a growing movement to make Bitcoin a reserve digital currency. You talk a lot in the book about the Chinese UN becoming a potential reserve currency in the future. Do you see a future there for Bitcoin as well as a potential reserve?
1: No, I don't think that you're going to see any central banks hold it in reserves for the mm. purchasing. There's two purposes of money. Money is a medium of exchange, but it also has to be a storehold of wealth. Sure. And I think that the issues with Bitcoin are that's easily traceable. It's not entirely personal. You can hold it. It's not private is what I'm saying. Sure. So those issues, therefore, means that governments can control it. And the biggest problem with governments is that right now they have their own money problem and you can't trust them. And if Bitcoin became too much of a good alternative, they get rid of Bitcoin. Sure. So I think it's been a tremendous accomplishment by Bitcoin to have had the programming that worked its way into it having stood the test of time. But I, I don't think the central banks are going to hold Bitcoin as a source of reserves. Okay. And I don't think it'll be a big alternative. It's not a big alternative. We, we talk a lot about it. But the total value of Bitcoin is a little over $700 billion, which is mm. small. Like if you looked at Microsoft, Microsoft's one stock is significantly right. larger. So I think too much is being made of Bitcoin.
0: And of course, then you have the central authority problem just by nature. It's decentralized might make it a little challenging. That's right.
1: Well, the decentralized is a good thing because it keeps it away from the governments in terms of the controls. But at the end of the day, they still can control it and monitor it. The problem that we have with fiat currencies is that they're not working well. So we're entered a period in which what is the storehold of wealth? I think people are going then into holding tangibles. It could be real estate Mm. and gold will probably play a larger role, Mm. but there'll be a competition. NFTs, will they play a role? What is this? Do you buy your stake in the
0: metaverse?
1: (laughs) Right. You know, so we don't know where the storehold of wealth will be. But we do know, by the way, that there are many more claims of financial wealth than there is financial wealth to go around. The Mm. amount of value of financial wealth, stocks, bonds, and so on it dwarfs the total amount of real wealth. And, and that's a problem because there's no purpose other than financial wealth and to buy real wealth. Hmm. And so when the ratio gets very high so that there's a lot of stored up money power and you think that you could sell your financial assets and buy your tangible assets, well, when it gets so large, that's impossible. And then you have um, a monetary inflation.
0: Well, I I know you've also said, you know, cash is trash. Um, I would probably be your worst nightmare because I have quite a bit of my money sitting in a checking account. How do you generally think about moments of volatility like the one that we're in now from an investing vantage point?
1: Yeah, don't be in debt instruments as debt assets by and large. Maybe you could be in inflation index bonds or something that protects yourself. don't be in those, and diversify well. And if I was to pick countries, there are three things that I look at for countries. Is the country earning more than it's spending? Does it have a good income statement and balance sheet first? Second, does it have internal order where people are working well with each other to be productive? And third, is it at risk of being drawn into an international war, or is it not at risk of that? Mm -hmm. So that's why I pick countries. Those are my general thoughts about what I would think about investing.
0: All right. Well, I just want to ask a a few questions about you, some of what you discussed in your first book, Principles. There were two financial bets that you made that had a huge impact on your career. One was really bad and the other one was monumentally good. The bad, uh, you know, you started Bridgewater at 26 in 1975. In 1982, you incorrectly predicted the coming of an economic crisis and you pretty much lost everything. You had to borrow $4,000 from your dad to pay the bills. What did you get wrong there and, and what did you take away from that experience?
1: Oh, it was one of the most painful experiences that happened to me. It was one of the best in that what I took away was a different way of thinking. Um, it gave me a humility that balanced my audacity. It you know, made me ask myself, how do you know you're right? And then I went back and I study history and I and I learned from it. I developed a, a principle, pain plus reflection equals progress. Mm. And I've experienced cool. that. And I learned how to diversify better, and I learned, you know how to be more open-minded and trying to have my ideas stress tested by other people who disagree with me. So I changed my whole way of thinking. That was really the exact bottom of of Bridgewater. And ever since then, you know, it's pretty much a pretty steady upward trajectory. (laughs) So those things I learned from that painful experience have helped me a lot.
0: Sure. And then on the flip side, you anticipated the 2008 recession and you made your investors a very sizable return when everyone else was hemorrhaging money. What did you see there that others missed?
1: I went back and studied history again because I knew that I needed to understand all things that happened. So I studied the 1929 to 33 debt bubble and burst, and mm-hmm. I understood it mechanically. And then what was happening in 2007 and eight was the identical thing. And so as a result of that, I was able to anticipate it. My company, Bridgewater, was able to anticipate it, and we were able to position ourselves well so that we made a lot of money when others lost a lot of money, because we understood the nature of dynamics. And that's a good example where, you know, that never happened in my lifetime before. So it didn't happen on most people's lifetimes. And that's why they missed it. But by studying it in the earlier period, I understood that and I was able to anticipate it.
0: You've spoken a lot about the importance of going against the consensus in investing and in life. That is a kind of a hard thing to do for many people. And um, I'm wondering what your advice might be to someone who maybe wants to be a little bit more contrarian, but has trouble questioning the status quo.
1: Yeah. In order for me to make money, I, by definition, have to bet against the consensus because the consensus is built into the price. So I have to understand where that's wrong. So I've learned that I need to do that. I think that if you look at how good it is to bet with the consensus, it's not very good. (laughs) So if you're an individual, there's a great power to being able to find out the right path, both through your ideas and taking the ideas of the smartest people who you know and stress testing those ideas. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, I'm more worried about being with the consensus than against the consensus because I learned that the consensus is awfully wrong, but it's built into the price. Mm, sure.
0: You know, hearing you talk, you've said in the past, you live by kind of a, a hyper-realist philosophy in that most things in life are kind of machine-like, that everything may conform to some overarching sense of order. What I find interesting about that is that your father was a jazz musician, and jazz is all about breaking free from strictures. I'm wondering what role improvisation has played in your approach to investing.
1: Oh, improvisation is an expression of creativity that comes from the subconscious. So it's very important. But what I found really helpful Mm -hmm. is also being conscious about it. There are two parts of our mind. There's the conscious mind in which we're logical and we could look at things logically. And then there's the subliminal, meaning it's below the limbic system which is the logical part of our brain. We can't see it actually, and it has a big influence on us. And a lot of what we do is in the subliminal mind, you know. That's where kind of the jazz comes from. Sure. But it's everything, you know. It's like you watch somebody catch a fly ball and you know, there's a trajectory, and if you did all the math and the calculations, but you get the angle and you do it almost in the subconscious. And so, uh, what I find is that aligning the two is good. I meditate, hmm. I do transcendental meditation, and the transcendental meditation brings me into my subconscious. It's an exercise of just going into your subconscious, and you're not conscious, but it makes that sort of connection. And it makes the improv, as you call it, the intuitions, the things that are not operating in the slow conscious mind makes those things work well so that when you also align them with what is happening in the conscious mind so that they make sense in both, one can make better decisions.
0: Hmm. It's funny, though, like in, in transcendental meditation, you you can't really cling on to those creative thoughts for too long. That's right. You kind of have to let them go. It's like a dream. It's like a dream, sure.
1: You wake up and you said, I have that dream, and you're trying to hold on to the dream and you really yeah. can't hold on, but it affects you. I carry through the effects of Transcendental Meditation through the day, mm. and it gives me that equanimity, that calmness to be able to approach things in a good way. I don't get emotionally hijacked. (laughs) So you carry that with you through the day. You've met a lot of successful people in your life,
0: heads of state, dignitaries, some of the wealthiest people on earth. Would you say there are any common traits among the highly accomplished individuals that you've met? Is there any kind of through line?
1: I've in fact done personality testing Mm -hmm. of people who are acquaintances or friends, including Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Reed Hastings, who founded and runs Netflix. Sure. A number of them. And there are common traits. By the way, those personality tests, the ones that I designed with great psychometricians helping me do that, if you want to learn about yourself, I put them online and it's free. It's called Principles You. You can go online and you can take it. Hmm. But people think in different ways. So I gave these tests to these remarkable people. And one of the things that they show is, They're very, very, very curious. They are independent thinkers. They are able to go from the full range of the big picture down to the detail. So, for example, when uh, Elon Musk let me drive his car, you know, he hands me the key and he shows me the button of how that affects the trunk and, and all of that, and then goes to the biggest issues, like he wants to colonize Mars. And so... They are pretty much full range, mm-hmm. meaning big picture as well as details. Right. They know how to work well with others so that they're getting the best leverage. Mm-hmm. They tend to be both systematic and creative. Most people who are creative may not be so systematic, and maybe most people who are systematic may not be creative. True, true. They tend to be. Both and they tend to hold people accountable. They have high standards for other people, and they hold them accountable. Some people would say they're rude or abrupt or ruthless, but it stands up there as they have to have smart, capable people around them. So those are the things. I think that also people don't realize that being at the top or in one's profession, you know, they think people are there because they must be very smart and very capable, or, and so on. Of course, that enters into it. But it's really how they deal with their not knowing that's more important than anything they know. In other words, they don't see themselves that way, hmm. the smartest people. They're curious, and they seek to suck out the best ideas and best thinking and be challenged. They like to be challenged intellectually.
0: On the note of personality traits, there is this great anecdote in principles about how you had made
1: baseball cards for your employees. Yeah, well, we found out, if, if you know what somebody's like, you can pretty well know what to expect from them. And we found out that if we did that in a scientific way, that helped everybody. It helped the person to know about themselves, to know about their strengths and weaknesses and how to deal with it. And it helped other people to know about each other so that they could put together teams well and organizations well, because you need the other types of thinking. You know, the big picture thinker needs the detail thinker and vice versa. So these baseball cards, which were like baseball cards, they show different categories and they show kind of what the person is like, they were invaluable.
0: All right, I just have a few uh, few questions from our listeners here. Dave Klein, who was actually a Bridgewater employee for a decade. Oh, great. <laughs> he asked on Twitter, are there any principles, Ray, that you've rethought lately or that have shifted over time?
1: Well, I'm constantly learning principles. You know, the ones that come to mind, again, pain plus reflection equals progress, is that I lost a son. That was the most painful experience in my life. At 42, he died in an automobile accident. And um, that experience was the worst thing that ever happened to me. It was the most painful experience. And then I reflected and so on. And I reflected quite a bit on death, life, my relationship with him, how it was and how it should be. And I thought a lot about death because everyone, we were going to lose people. We lose people that we love. And then thinking about what remains. So The ones that I did, you know, that's the one that overwhelmingly pops up in my head about, Mm -hmm. you know, the principles of death. And related to that also comes the serenity prayer. God give me the serenity to accept that which I can't control and give me the power to control Mm -hmm. that which I can and give me the wisdom to tell the difference. And meditation helped me and, and so on. So those are the ones That stick in my head you know there were of course other ones about transitioning in my phase of life and many other things but the ones that really stick in my head were you know those that came out of that experience
0: Hmm. it's really interesting because it seems like you've spent a large portion of your life trying to wrangle things in and make sense of things that are uncontrollable markets and relationships and people can be very unpredictable and hard to control
1: that's right. And one of the things I've learned is that uh, whatever success I've had in life has been more due to my knowing how to deal with what I don't know mm-hmm. and anything I know. Because what you don't know, there's a lot of it out there. And so how do you do that to diversify? Well, I have a you know principle. If you worry, you don't have to worry. And if you don't worry, you need to worry. Because if you know of those things that could happen, then you protect yourself well. So, anyway, I, yeah, that's right.
0: Someone else asked, what is the one thing you disagree with most people on?
1: I'm going to give a category of things, okay. big category of things that apply to many things. There are first order consequences and there are second order consequences. What I mean by that is pain people avoid, but it may be good for you because it teaches you. Mm. Or another example of this is, let's say food. It's almost like God has given us a trick that the food that tastes good is not the ones that's good for you. And the ones that doesn't taste so good are the ones that are forbidden fruits. (laughs) And exercise. I mean, if it was pleasurable, so there are always the second order consequences. And it's like kids, they call it the marshmallow test. You can ask a kid at an early age, maybe six or eight, You said you have a choice. You can have one marshmallow now or you can have two marshmallows in 10 minutes. Which do you choose? Mm -hmm. And the idea of the deferred gratification and being able to change that, I think I disagree the most with people. Mm -hmm. So I think like the value of mistakes, like I think mistakes are an essential part of learning. I think the whole education system is backwards. In other words, they take a pride in knowing And people with a lot of pride in knowing are less receptive to learning because they're trying to show off the what they know. Mm. So I think that my views are very much on second order consequences where, you know, let me think about those second order consequences of whether they're going to produce Mm. those advantages.
0: So exercise you brought up, a first order consequence would be pain. Second order would be it's good for your health and it makes you feel better about yourself.
1: Right. 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 And um, what you find in the process is that when you start to do those things that are good for you, that are painful, is you change your habit Mm. and you don't want it any other way. (laughs) Sure. So it becomes painful to do the opposite, to do the initially pleasurable thing. (laughs) That's the funny thing of how it works. So when you get that, you say, well, I'm going to get the habit What is the right thing that could give me the right second order consequence? And how do I get in the habit Hmm. of doing that? Like for me, what happens is painful mistake. I view now as a puzzle that if I solve the puzzle, I will get a gem. Hmm. Puzzle is what's going on here and how does that reality work and how do I deal with it differently so I'll produce a better outcome? And the gem is a principle That I write down. I'm big on writing down my principles while learning about them. Oh, we know, yeah. And that's a gem because it helps me in all the times in the future. Hmm. All right, one more reader question here. What role do you think luck has played
0: in your career? And I'll just tack a little bit onto this. There's obviously mythology that hard work alone can beget success. The other extreme is that people who are very wealthy or who have achieved great success just were solely lucky.
1: I think life is really a bunch of decisions, many, 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 many decisions that you make and it produces the cumulative effect. Of course, some are bigger than others and luck enters into that. But it's also interesting that happiness is due to how things transpire for you relative to your expectation, not your absolute level of conditions. You know, you could have somebody, let's say a multiple billionaire, they lose a billion dollars and they're unhappy. Okay. I know somebody who might have $10,000 and, you know, they get another $10,000 and they're through the moon. Sure. All happy. And there's a difference. I think in terms of those types of things, we adjust and how you adjust to your circumstances. I had a friend who became a quadriplegic. Mm. He dove into the pool and he hit his head on the bottom and he Mm. became a quadriplegic. But how he adapted, to that circumstance uh, was his approach. Hmm. And he created as good a life as you could imagine in terms of his wife, his relationships, his children, and other things. So I do think approach matters hugely too.
0: Hmm. And adaptation and ability to adapt. That's
1: interesting. That's right. Adaptation, ability to adapt.
0: Okay, last thing I want to leave off our conversation with here is. This is probably one of my favorite anecdotes of all time. You briefly touch on it in principles. Uh, It's a story about how you helped McDonald's launch chicken nuggets. You were a commodities trader and an advisor early in your career. And in the early 80s, McDonald's has this new idea for a product, but there's obviously a a big problem and they come to you for help. What was the issue there?
1: So I was on Bridgewater. I was my company and I traded commodities And I had a large chicken producer as a client, and I had McDonald's as a client. And Mm. McDonald's wanted to come out with the McNugget. But the problem with the McNugget is if the cost of buying McNuggets varied a lot, they can put it on the menu, the price could go up a lot, and they'd have big losses. And then they'd either have to change the menu price, which would be a mess, Or they would have to take these losses. So that was their problem. That was the challenge. So
0: they were spooked by the volatility of chicken prices. Right. Okay.
1: And new product. Oh, that would be really terrible. So that was their problem. And I knew the chicken producer. And I know that the cost of producing a chicken is very little the little chicken, the chick. It's mostly the feed that you feed the chicken, corn and soy meal. And Mm -hmm. I knew that I could hedge that by being able to buy corn and soy meal futures so that they would lock in a chicken price. Mm -hmm. So I showed the chicken producer how he could do that and then give a fixed price to McDonald's so they wouldn't have that risk. So that's the story.
0: So in part, we have you to thank for McNuggets for fixing those grain prices and and making that a tenable product. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. You know, um, as a commodities trader, too, you made a point to actually go out to Texas and meet with cattle ranchers and grain dealers. And you went to honky tonks and barbecues. (laughs) Can you speak to the importance of immersing yourself with the people behind the numbers in the market?
1: Oh, uh, you know, for me, life is about meaningful work and meaningful relationships. And I love to get to know people, particularly um, who come from different perspectives. So it's a richer experience. The personal relationship part is an enormously gratifying and effective way of achieving your goal. So, yeah, uh, those were wonderful, wonderful experiences. hmm. That, and I do this uh, still now all over the world, and the most unusual places, and people with the most different points of view, I love to get to know and see it through their eyes. And so it's created a vivid, almost, you know, technicolor type of life in which I get to see those, I feel them, and I develop those relationships. It's so wonderful, and it gives a real understanding. Well, I would say, for example, China. Um, I started to go to China in 1984. The main things I went to China for was I was curious because, you know, it was closed then. And there were Chinese with film clips of, or news clips with their little red books and they're waving their little red books behind the wall. And then I get invited to China and by the first company that was allowed to deal with the outside world because I wanted to go learn about the markets. And I went there hmm. and I liked the people and I saw the circumstances and I was involved. And so I've been involved there for you know 34 years. And let me assure you that there are good people. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't have known, and I wouldn't have known today what's really going on in China or the United States. When you have that type of contact, it gives you a lot.
0: Yeah, you know, people often, they ask of people who've achieved massive financial success, what keeps them going? What keeps them in the game? And it sounds like for you, it's always been a people first kind of approach.
1: Yeah, you do this game, like, first, make your work and your passion the same thing. hmm And then you're excited. And I'm at 70. It's You know, I always said it's meaningful work and meaningful relationships. And at 70, I reflected, okay, you can only pick one. Which would it be? Relationships. Mm -hmm. And that's been shown through history because they show, interestingly, psychologists have shown that there is no correlation between the level of happiness you have and the amount of money you have once you're over a basic survival income level. Sure. The thing that there is the highest correlation across cultures between happiness and having is a sense of community, Hmm. relationships. Do you feel happy at this juncture of your life? I do, I feel happy. I have so much to appreciate. I have so much to be grateful for.
0: Ray Dalio, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
1: It was my pleasure. I hope it's of use to some people. Thank you.
0: All right, that's gonna do it for us today if you liked what you heard, we've got a lot more tech and business coverage and interviews with other influential people over at TheHustle.co. Our editor today is Robert Hartwig and our executive producer is Darren Clark. Thanks for tuning in to The Hustle Daily Show. We're a proud part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. We'll see you next time.